0: I don't know how many of you here tonight are Prison Break break fans, but I can guarantee you I'm a huge fan. The night that uh, the season finished, I was actually out for dinner with the guys from work and I missed the final episode. It was uh, a bit of a heartbreaking experience, but my lovely wife taped it for me. Uh, The following week, I managed to tape over it with McLeod's daughters. (laughs) So if anyone's got the video, I'd love to see it. For those of you who aren't familiar with the series, uh, the series is based around two brothers, Michael Schofield and Lincoln Burroughs. At the beginning of the season, Lincoln's in jail for a crime he hadn't committed. His brother, although knowing that Lincoln had been on the wrong side of the law before, decides that he's going to get him out of jail. He's going to stop at nothing to get him out. After months of trying, Michael finally gets put into jail with Lincoln. Amazing, really. Two brothers in America put into the same jail. Must be some sort of planning. When he gets into jail, Michael's seen as all the other prisoners. A dirty scumbag who'd crossed onto the wrong side of the law. The guards didn't see him as any different to any of the others. Little did they know he was a good guy just trying to get his, do something good for his brother. Michael was still that brainy engineer who'd designed that jail and knew every crook and cranny of it. Michael was a good guy surrounded by a bunch of criminals. He was just trying to do something good. Michael lived a double life. How many Christians do you know that live double lives today? Although they claim to be a Christian and claim to love Christ, they don't do it the right way. They don't appear to be any different to those around them. Just like Michael, who who has looked the same as all the criminals around him, Many Christians today look the same as everyone else in this world. Here on earth, just to serve themselves, out to get everything they can for themselves. I know I once lived a double life like this. When I first left home, I went off to university. During during this time, I spent my life living to the motto, party, party, party. That's all I was interested in. I thought I was okay. I went to church on Sunday nights and I was even sober by the time I got there. I was going to Bible study when I had time to make it. I met up with the trainee minister once a week just to read the Bible and talk about God. I even told those around me about God if if I had an opportunity. To those at church, I looked like I was on the straight and narrow, but that's not where my heart was. Thanks to a couple of good mates of mine, I saw it differently. In Colossians 3, Paul tells us that this isn't how we as Christians should live. He shows us that we should stand out. He tells us we should live different lives to those around us and that we shouldn't be living to serve ourselves like they are. Paul's writing to the Colossian church in this passage to remind them what Christ has done for them. He points out in this what their response to this should be. He also points this out to us here tonight. He starts by reminding them that they were raised with Christ. If you want to turn to verse 1 of your passages with me and we're at point 1 on your outlines. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In this part of the passage we see something amazing about Christ's resurrection and its effect on our lives. Verse 1 tells us that we were raised with Christ. So what does it mean to be raised with Christ? I know the Bible talks about Christ being raised from the dead. And I rose out of bed this morning. And I might have risen my voice at my workmate the other day. But how am I raised with Christ? The Bible talks a lot about Christ's resurrection and how it does and should affect us. But do we truly know what it means to be raised with Christ? We see a great example of how we are raised with Christ in Romans chapter 6 and verses 3 and 4. Romans chapter 6 verse 3 and 4 says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may now live a new life. In biblical times and in many Christian churches today, when a person made a commitment to follow Christ, they would be baptised in water. Quite often this was done in a river or a lake or something similar. It was an act that symbolised the death and resurrection of Christ. The believer would be lowered into the water to symbolise the death of Christ and then raised up out of the water to symbolise the rising of the risen Lord. This also represents the death of our life, of our old life, and being risen with Christ into a new life. Although many of us here today mightn't have been ceremonially baptised, the commitment of our lives to him has done the same thing. The day that we made our commitment to follow Christ We died to our earthly nature, we were cleansed of our sins and raised from our earthly deaths. This new life that we are now able to experience is only available through the death and resurrection of Christ. So thanks to Christ's amazing love, we have been raised with him. The scary thing is, Paul's story doesn't end there though. It would be great if we could say we've been raised with Christ so therefore all the work's been done for us. But Paul goes on to tell us what it means to our lives because we have raised with Christ. Verse 1 of our passage says that since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Paul's showing us that because we've been raised with Christ, we can't just slack off in this life. He doesn't say, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your mind on great wealth. Look for the biggest house you can find and build up your earthly kingdom. He tells us very clearly to set our hearts and minds on the things of Christ, the things of heaven and not on earthly things. So what's this mean to your life here tonight? Does it mean giving up your job that you really enjoy to go work for the church or maybe going overseas to do mission work? Not necessarily. For for you, it may mean that instead of spending money on upgrading the ute or buying that new dress, that you might put a bit more in the offertory bag this month. It may mean that instead of avoiding Bob when you see him downtown because he's a bit hard to talk to, that you'll go out of your way to go talk to him and make sure he knows Christ's love. We'll see more of how this should unfold in our lives in just a bit, but one thing we see in this passage now is that we're also hidden in Christ and that we must die to our old selves. We've died and our lives are hidden in Christ. So, what does it mean to have died and hidden in, be hidden in someone else? Well, that's what Paul tells us we are in verse 3. He says, For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. Hidden with Christ is a strange concept to grasp hold of. So, I looked up what hidden means in the Macquarie Dictionary. It tells us that to be hidden from something is to be prevented from being seen or discovered. So what's Christ hiding our lives from? I'm sure that many of us are thinking we've got nothing to hide from. We live a good life. We do all the right things. We say all the right things. We don't swear. We haven't stolen anything. We haven't murdered anyone. So why would Christ want to hide our lives? Little do we know that even the smallest thoughts we have, Christ knows about. And I know my thoughts aren't always right. Paul's making a very specific point to the Colossian church. He's telling them that because they've committed their lives to Christ and have died to their old selves, that their lives are now hidden in Christ. God and all his wrath, wrath are now unable to see all the lies, greed, deceit and all the other bad stuff that they've done. It's all hidden under Christ's blood. This doesn't mean that we've got away with it though. It just means that Christ is gracious and has forgiven us. It's not because of anything we've done, but because God loves us. Amazing to think that someone would do something so great for people so little, people who don't deserve it. It's funny, though, that we can't hide forever. Paul goes on to explain that one day we will appear with Christ in his glory. Verse 4 tells us that one day we're going to appear with Christ. We're going to appear with him in all his glory and we're going to live with him in all his glory for eternity. God tells us that on this day we will have to give an account for our lives and why we responded to his love the way we did. Romans chapter 14 verse 12 spells this out pretty clearly. It says, So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. So although in these days we are hidden under the covering of Christ's blood, we need to respond to what Christ has done for us. We need to be prepared to give an account for why we responded how we did. Because of Christ's great love, we can look forward to a day when we will appear with him in all his glory and be seated at God's right hand in heaven. But we do have to respond to it. Paul shows us that our response should be to put to death our old self. Paul doesn't just say, look, Christ has done all this for you, so let's continue to live a good life. Let's celebrate. Let's enjoy it. Paul says the total opposite. If you want to turn to verse 5 with me now, and we're at point 2 on your outlines. since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. Paul uses pretty strong language here to get us thinking about what being raised with Christ and set apart should look like. Paul doesn't say you should try to stop doing what you used to do, or if it works for you, you should leave the ways of your earthly nature. Paul says put to death whatever belongs to the earthly nature. Notice though, Paul has already told us of God's grace and love for us. He's also told us that through Christ we are saved and he's now pointed us to the way that we should behave because of it. That's the great thing about Christ's love for us. We put to death our old nature and try to be more like Christ. It's kind of like marriage, really. When I first met Marley, I was a pretty typical Aussie bloke. I lived a pretty free life and did what I wanted when I wanted I enjoyed my social life and enjoyed it even more if there was lots of single girls around. Since I've got married I'm now accountable to Marley. I don't have to tell her what I'm doing but I do so so that she knows where I am and when I'll be home. My social life's changed a bit too. I tend to spend a bit more time at home and when I do go to parties I go to catch up with my mates, not to meet new women. I generally brush my teeth a little more often too. Why have I changed these things in my life? It's because I want to show Marley and those around us how much I love her and appreciate her. This is how how I show the world that I'm committed to Marley. So in the following verses here, we find Paul not giving us a bunch of rules, but rather a list of things that if we truly love and respect Christ, people around us will notice changing in our lives. Paul doesn't say that it'll be easy or there'll be no pain. There's always pain and struggles relating to death. And since we're putting to death our old selves, we're going to experience some pain and some struggles. But Paul also tells us here that our reward's going to come when we appear with Christ. Uh, In our passage it says that we must put to death whatever belongs to our earthly nature. must put to death sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Paul takes a fairly hard approach here. He, set, he picks out points that every human being struggles with. All you've got to do nowadays is turn on the TV and you'll see how much sexual immorality has infiltrated our culture. Australian advertisers will tell you that sex sells. So why wouldn't they plaster it everywhere they can? We need to be guarding ourselves and our families and relationships of garbage like this. Paul tells us there's no place for sexual immorality in a Christian life. It's not only sexual immorality that Paul's worried about, though. He talks about getting rid of all evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. So what, what are evil desires and greed? It covers a huge range of things. Evil desires are wanting in anything that's not going to build up God's, God's kingdom. Therefore, it generally go hand in hand with greed. The promotion you've been chasing, why do you want it? Is it so you can build up God's kingdom or is it so you can build up your own kingdom? God says this is idolatry, it's putting other things before him. It's putting your wealth as your God and your social standing as your God. Putting them before him. The new car you want to buy just because your best mate's got one better than yours or the pair of shoes you want to buy to make the other girls around you jealous. Paul tells us this is idolatry. It's putting your reputation and social standing before him, putting them as your God. In verse 6, Paul tells us that it's because of sins such as these that that God's wrath is coming. It's great to know that we're covered by Christ's blood and don't have to fear the coming wrath. Can't even start to imagine what it would be like. But Paul doesn't throw this comment in for no reason. He wants us to know that it's because of sins such as these that God's wrath is coming. He wants us to know that God's not happy with us continuing to live in this world of sin. God doesn't want us to continue committing these sins. Paul's reinforcing the fact that we need to put to, sin, put to death such sins as these. Sins such as these have no place in a Christian life. Paul goes on in verse 7 of our passage reminding us that, the ways of the, that these are all ways of the old life. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Paul doesn't say continue to fight the good fight and try to avoid these things. He says it very clearly that they used to be ways of the old life. He makes it very clear that all these types of behaviour have no place. We so often try to reason with ourselves that we live in a fallen world so we don't have to be perfect. God doesn't see it that way. Paul makes it very clear that sin is a part of the old life. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus himself speaks of this and how sin should no longer be part of our lives. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 7, if you'd like to turn to it with me. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Here we see that Jesus doesn't see any middle ground. Jesus doesn't say, if your hand causes you to sin, reprimand it and try not to let it happen again. He very clearly says, cut it off, get rid of it, throw it away, make sure that whatever happens, it doesn't cause you to sin again. They're very strong words, but that's the stand that Christ takes on sin. So isn't that the stand that we too should be taking? Paul understood this very clearly and wanted to make sure that we understood what Christ's standing was. In verse 8, Paul continues on telling us how we need to be rid of all such sins in our lives. He's making sure that we see that, what, that we need to be rid of every sin, not just those that are obvious to those around us, but those that we think no one knows about. Verse 8 of our passage says, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. You're starting to see that what quite often comes out of our our mouths might be where our heart is. Paul says, look, even lying to one another, this must stop. Don't slander one another. This isn't building up God's kingdom. This can be hard sometimes, I know it can. We all struggle with it. It's So easy to let a word slip out of your mouth when you drop something on your toe or go off at someone when they make you a bit aggro. But Paul says here it's not acceptable. In our society it's so easy to reason with ourselves that what we're doing and saying isn't so bad. How many times have you heard someone say, I'm not lying, I just didn't tell them the whole truth, they didn't really need to know that. Paul tells us this isn't acceptable. He continues to back up his argument in verses 9 and 10, saying, Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which has been renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here again, Paul tells us that that it's because we've taken off our old self and put on the new self that we should be rid of all these practices. He reminds us there's no middle ground. You're either for God and rid of evil practices, or you're against God and living your own life. It's like my example of my marriage to Marley. There's no way I can be married to Marley and still be living my old life and dating other women. I have to conform to my new way of life. If I was dating other women still, those around me wouldn't be able to see the commitment and love that I have to Marley. God expect, in the same way, God expects us to be rid of our old lives. He expects us to be living in our new life. I mean, I didn't become the world's best husband overnight, and nor do I claim to be yet. But I'm continually learning how to be a better husband with the aim that one day Marley will tell her friends that I was the best husband she could have had. So Paul tells us the Christian life is always a growing experience. Paul says we've put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of our creator. So we're continually being renewed as we grow closer to our creator. We do so as we receive more of his knowledge and become closer and more like him. Paul reassures us we won't be the perfect Christian straight away but over time we should be put on more of Christ's likeness until the point where we appear with him in his glory. I can't wait for that day, I don't know about you. He tells us here in verses 9 and 10 that we are being renewed to be in the image of our Creator. This doesn't mean that we should continue to struggle with sin. Christ never struggled with sin, so if we are becoming more like him, sin should be becoming a distant memory. If we're being transformed to be more like him, we should be focusing on him and realising that he is all there is in this life. In this, we should see that his word applies to all. There's no ifs, buts, or maybes in his word. Verse 11 of our passage and point three of your outlines. Verse 11 says, Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So what's Paul talking about? Well, it's quite clear that Paul is trying to show us that in Christ's eyes we're all equal. There's no difference between Greek and Jew in his eyes. There's no difference between circumcised and uncircumcised men. There's no difference between barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Black or white, red or yellow, we're all the same. We're all hidden in him if we accept what he's done for us. It's also trying to point out another big point to us. It's making it very obvious that each of us needs to turn from our sin. No matter who we are, we need to hear these words tonight. We all have sins we've committed and need to turn from. Paul's words here to us in Colossians tonight shouldn't make us think, well, I need to go and speak to that that girl in my Bible study group. She needs to turn from her sin. Paul's saying that we all need to be turning from our sins. We're all equally guilty of sinning against Christ. No sin's greater than any other and we need to be being renewed in the the image of our Creator. Thanks to Christ's blood shed on the cross for us all, we are all seen as clean by God. All that's required of us is for us to accept his forgiveness. The big point here, though, is that in God's eyes, all sin is equally bad. Therefore, we all equally need Christ's forgiveness, and we all equally need to turn from our sin. Paul only lists a very small range of sins. By no means is he saying these are the only sins that matter. Paul makes it very clear that we all need to be turning from it, these sins. Don't get me wrong for a second though, I'm not saying that we shouldn't keep each other accountable either. We all need to be, keep, be supporting each other in this, in this race. The point though is that we all need to turn to our own lives first. Our first priority should always be to make sure that we are building up Christ's kingdom and that our lives are reflecting Christ's love. As Jesus said himself in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 3, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Quite clearly, Jesus wants us to be looking at our own lives. He wants us to be making sure that our lives are right before God. This should be our first priority before we go judging those around us. So this week, how are you going to show that those around you that you're living for Christ and living a heavenly-focused life? Paul Coleman of the Paul Coleman Trio Band is very passionate about Christians living out their calling and making it known that they love and live for Christ. On their acoustic live album, Paul Coleman says this, How funny it must have looked to the aliens, if there are aliens, and they look down on Homebush Stadium and they see 110,000 people in there and they look down and they think, hey, where's the focus? And they see this little guy taking a run up and jumping into sand and everyone's going off. What a strange planet. And they look down on the city of Melbourne at all these people gathered around, a whole lot of little guys riding animals. And the people on the side are jumping around and waving their arms. Some people are tottering over and looking like they can't stay on their feet for some reason and they've got a drink in their hand and they learn we spend a hundred million dollars on a horse race. You know, it's funny what people get excited about. Some people will go to church for twenty years and they're just going to go, yeah, whatever. And they go to a footy game and they become an instant social animal. So I don't think it's too weird if you walk into a church building somewhere and you see all those people with their hands lifted in the air. What are they doing? They're reaching for something bigger than themselves. They're getting as high as they physically can and saying, hey, fill my cup to the top with running water. Call me out and show me how. It's amazing to look at it in this perspective. How often do we get excited about a footy match, a horse race, a tennis game, or a car race? How many of our our workmates know which rugby team we're supporting in this year's World Cup? Or what car we support at the Bathurst V8 race each year? Or what the latest bargain we picked up at Myers was? How many of them know that we were at church on Sunday night? How many of them know we're excited about living for Christ and that we long to be more like him? Are we striving to show them what Christ means to us? Or are we just going to go to church for 20 years and walk out and go, yeah, whatever? Getting excited for God at weekend away once a year at Western Plains Christian Convention isn't enough. We need to be showing the world that God rocks and he's done an amazing thing for us in saving us. What would your workmates say if someone asked them about you and what you stood for? Would they say Brad's always focused on his work. He's always looking for a pay rise and doesn't care who he barrels over in the process. swears like a trooper and he's always keen to hear the latest gossip. Or, would they say, Brad's a hard worker, he's a real company man. He's always there to help others out, though, and he's pretty loving to those around him. Seems a bit different, maybe. Talks about God and church occasionally, too. He actually seems to get really excited about it. Maybe that's why he's different. I hope my workmates would say the second of me. So how many of your workmates can see what your focus is? Can they see that your focus is different? The first four verses of tonight's passage tell us who we are in Christ. We're raised with Christ. We're hidden in Christ. We'll appear with Christ. So if this is who we are, why isn't Christ our focus? Why aren't we living with our focus on heaven? God's so gracious and he's done so much for us already. All he asks of us is to turn from our sin and set our hearts and minds on the things of heaven. So where is your focus? Are you living a heavenly focused life or are you living to please your earthly longings?